You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about polarization and why it is such an effective way of communicating. Now, if you read anything about polarization in the realm of politics or in psychology today, it almost always comes with a negative connotation and is often followed by long-winded motherly diatribes about how polarity is destroying our country. Such a bad thing. Now, a quick Google search will bear this out if you're willing to look. Among political commentators and writers at, say, The Atlantic or New York Magazine, polarization is a four-letter word that resides somewhere in the low-rent district, along with racism and bigotry. To this crowd of elite thinkers, academic types, and highbrow journalistas, polarization is the bastard child of tribalism. And it's closely related to the deadbeat uncles that no one wants to have anything to do with, namely extremism, hate, and divisiveness. What is almost exclusively focused on in these conversations is the negative aspect of polarization. And what these people keep demanding as a solution to polarization, which is supposedly dividing the country, is moderation. Doesn't that sound like a pleasant word? So what we need to do, they say, is focus on shared interest, policy compromises, and wide-scale societal collaboration. And the biggest irony of all, many of these same people, well, they're pushing highly polarized cultural campaigns through news media, entertainment, and academia. They're embracing brand marketing strategies and political maneuvering and legal measures that amount to total warfare for the progressive left. So while they're out there fueling polarizing and divisive messaging that supports the far left, they pass the peace pipe and they demand from the rest of us moderation. In this case, it's important to pay attention not to what they say, but what they do. Now, to be fair, most of the effective alt-right personalities are also masters of polarization. And this includes people like Milo Yiannopoulos, Steve Bannon, and Donald Trump. But what they don't generally do is cry about the moral depravity of polarity politics. That's reserved for leftists and milquetoast conservatives aligned with or part of the political establishment, right? All the David Brooks and Rod Dreher's and David French's of the world who were crying about Donald Trump and his mean tweeting. Well, a lot of what Donald Trump was doing was being polarizing, and it was actually quite effective. Who got elected? Donald Trump, not the other Mitt Romneys of the world in years past, right? In fact, those guys had to intentionally distance themselves and convince the rest of us that they're not moderates, that they're true conservatives, right? So even though we seem to think that being a moderate is such a good thing, oftentimes it isn't. So if you think about conservatism, one of the basic tenets is that we are keeping our heads down at all times. That's what the conservative thinks. Build a bunker, build a bomb shelter, batten down the hatches, Don't speak up, pretend that we've already lost, and by all means, don't disrupt Thanksgiving dinner with your family by talking about religion or politics. Instead, we go with the flow. We don't want to attract attention to ourselves. And in other words, we want to avoid polarization at all costs. 
Now, it's important to understand why polarizing people are calling for moderation. Like any great war strategy, this one is based on deception. And in this case, we're talking about a culture war. And when you think about it, it's a damned effective one, too. The best way to build up your nuclear arsenal without anyone noticing is maybe to be the world's greatest promoter of disarmament. This not only provides the cover you need to beef up your own weapons stashes unnoticed, but it also creates a likely scenario in which the enemy willingly disarms while you're preparing for a blitzkrieg. Sun Tzu, in his Art of War, described it best when he said this, All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. And when we are far away, we must make him believe we are near. End quote. Likewise, the lefty poster child, Saul Alinsky, wrote in his community organizing playbook titled Rules for Radicals, quote, Pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Don't try to attack abstract corporations or bureaucracies. Identify a responsible individual. Ignore attempts to shift or spread the blame. End quote. So here's what I'll be driving at and expounding in this article. Polarizing messages are very effective. Don't listen to what so many on the left and right are telling you. Polarization is often a good thing, and more importantly, it's a very effective way of communicating. So in this article, I want to talk about why polarization is such an effective way to communicate. I want to talk about how you can use it. And finally, I want to talk about why this principle is so important to understand in the context of the church and the culture as we think about the culture war. So first of all, we'll start with number one, why polarizing messages are so effective. While politicians and psychologists are the first ones to cast polarization in a pejorative light, Marketing folks, on the other hand, are much more open to capitalizing upon the positive impact that polarity can have when you're trying to deliver a message or develop your brand. For example, the Nike campaign with Colin Kaepernick is often interpreted negatively by conservatives. But when you actually look at the data, it was a financial windfall for the company. A year after Nike inked an endorsement deal with the failed NFL quarterback, it reported a $6 billion increase in worth thanks to a 31% increase in sales. So what's the point of this? Well, polarizing messages are very effective. They demand a response, either in the form of love or hate. The one thing you can't be is indifferent to the message. As one marketing expert put it, the most exciting and interesting brands are decidedly polarizing. She had this to say, quote, the truth is the biggest enemy brands face in today's polarized world is not the other side. The enemy of all brands is indifference. Don't fear being hated. Fear being invisible. Fear being something people don't have an opinion or a thought about at all. Fear being something that can be easily replaced. Polarization in politics and beyond gives us passion groups. It gives us friction. And that friction creates cultural heat. Cultural heat creates buzz. And when you can tap into that, suddenly your brand is not invisible. When it's clear what a brand stands for and what they stand against, that's when things really get interesting. End quote. 
So these are some brilliant insights, right? Don't fear being hated, fear being invisible. And embrace cultural friction through polarization. This might be the essential key way to get your message out. Polarizing messages are effective because they demand a passionate response, right? They rub us the wrong way. They strike a chord. They make us think deeply. They often trouble and perplex us. They engage us in thoughtful debate, and we feel compelled to weigh in. In fact, we must choose sides. That's what a polarizing message will do. Some of the best communicators in history have had a knack for figuring out where those cultural fault lines are, these unspoken tension points that polarize us. And then they start dancing around them with big banners and a megaphone. In this case, there's no room for indifference. These messengers and speakers and leaders usually have passionate haters and diehard followers. This was the genius behind Trump and the 2016 Make America Great campaign. It's also one of the reasons I think that Trump lost in 2020 because they moved entirely away from this polarizing message of populism. What would Jesus polarize? Disturbing as it may be to some soft lefties in the church today, Jesus often communicated with polarity in his messages all the time. First, consider that he often chose us versus them language that would make the nice guys in the pews wet themselves today. Not very inclusive of you, Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He forces us to pick our sides and to realize that eternity depends on it. In Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. And then in Matthew 10, 38, he says again, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. So you see, in Jesus' language, so often you're either a sheep or a goat, you're a son of God or you're a son of Satan. You're, you're a son of the viper or you're the son of the king. The violent, well, they're the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom. Repent or perish. This is the kind of language that draws definitive battle lines in the sand and forces you to pick a side. Second, notice that Jesus often speaks in hyperbolic, seemingly extreme ways that are meant to elicit a powerful response, either negative or positive. In Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Again, in Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What did you just say, Jesus? I have to hate my parents, my children? I have to be violent? What are you talking about? You see, Jesus could have qualified these statements, as many evangelical pastors would do today, but he chose not to do that. In fact, his speech put as sharp a point on it as he possibly could have. It's more than a little bit offensive, right? It makes your ears stand up. It sparks a bit of curious outrage, and it reveals your preconceived notions. It ruffles your feathers. And, most importantly, it's effective because it makes you pay attention. It makes you think more deeply, and it makes you ask good questions of the text. What Jesus and his communication method don't allow you to do is ignore what's being said or remain neutral. So number two, now I want to talk about how you can possibly use this to your advantage, whether you're crafting a brand, planning a church, 
you're just working on your messaging, you're starting a podcast, blog, whatever it is, how can you use this information about polarization to your advantage? Well, as we delve into this, I want to start with an important caveat and maybe a question that many of you are asking, sort of a natural question from all of this. And it's basically this, can't polarization be a bad thing too? And the answer is yes, depending on how it's used. Polarization can be a powerful technique for communication, or it can be completely abused, as it often is in our culture today. So anytime we have a powerful tool, we need to know how to use it well. And in our culture especially, we live among people, and particularly people in the media, and arts, and academia, who have made an art of exploiting and abusing polarity and polarization for a vast array of politically and consumer-driven reasons. So as the Nike incident illustrates, corporations have figured out that they can capitalize on your outrage to drive sales, right? Nike ultimately is about making money, and they figure, well, if we can cause outrage and use polarization to do that, then we can make more money. So is a consumer and as a, as a citizen of the U.S., you have to think about that. Politicians can do the same to bolster fundraising campaigns and solidify voting segments. Twitter and Facebook can do it to drive clicks and time on site. Likewise, social media and traditional news outlets will turn out the kind of sensational headlines that are meant to fuel a state of constant outrage, fear, or panic which constitutes an abuse of polarizing communication methods. Yes, you get outraged, but often about all the wrong things. And notice that none of it really spurs you on to taking meaningful action or ordering your own existence well. No, these companies or social media channels, they're doing it because they need ratings and they want engagement to increase. Polarizing messaging has to be used with wisdom, which means that you have to know the time, place, and measure in which to use it. Like stress, polarity in measured doses administered at the right time can be used to create a necessary response. After all, some things really are outrageous and they demand our action. But when people are outraged or stressed all the time, they eventually get overwhelmed, depressed, and simply shut down. This is really the state of culture in America today. We're just burned out from constantly being outraged. 2020 was a premier example of this. And I bring it up because we're living in a culture in which people are addicted to outrage and our culture producing smack peddlers on both sides of the camp are more than happy to keep us snorting lines off the coffee table and constantly strung out from the latest Twitter or Fox News induced rage fest. Now, generally speaking, these outrage pimps are creating polarity along lines that don't match up with goodness, truth or beauty. CNN wants you to hate the people on the right while Fox wants you to hate the people on the left. But neither is usually interested in promoting anything like the righteous standard of God's holy law or repentance in accordance with it. So, the question is, how can you use polarity to your advantage? First, you need to realize that polarization is one component in a larger strategy for effective communication. The most effective communication is simple, it deeply resonates with people, it provides a concrete call to action, it's highly relatable, and it's polarizing. In other words, effective messaging is easy to understand, it connects with people's souls in meaningful ways, and it gives them practical steps for taking action. 
It relates to their life, and it demands a love-or-hate response. Now, I'll be the first to admit, and my own mother can confirm this, I was born to be a button pusher. I have an intuitive knack for finding people's pressure points, their buttons, and then pushing them. Now, uncontrolled, this skill can be used sinfully, right? You can use it to agitate, harass, or push people over the edge. But when it is harnessed for good, it can be used to drive at the issues that really matter. And it is harnessed for good when it is combined with other tools, like wise listening, a dose of empathy, and compassionate truth-telling. Second, only talk about politics and religion. G.K. Chesterton once said, quote, I never discuss anything except politics and religion, for there is nothing else to discuss, end quote. The taboo matter we often tend to shy away from, I've often found, is, topically speaking, actually the most important and most interesting. What if you embraced rather than spurned those topics? What if you embraced the social tension this creates as the necessary means to having deeper, more meaningful conversations that lead to genuine change in people's lives? One of our biggest temptations is to think that if we want to have an effective message, we have to aim for the largest number of people, right? This lowest common denominator method of communication. It means speaking in a way that the majority of a population will appreciate. We don't want to alienate anybody on the fringe. And so to do this, we simply stay away from controversial issues. As we'll talk about in a moment, this is so often the practice of the mainstream evangelical church. Let's just keep it light, keep it therapeutic, and not deal with the elephant in the room. The result of this is usually a bland message. And oddly enough, this bland message attracts people with low to moderate levels of investment. They're not exactly tribe members or followers, they're just more like passive consumers. It doesn't really resonate with anyone at all, and not all that deeply. And while this level of communication doesn't create many haters, it also doesn't create many passionate followers either. My strategy for the Hard Men podcast ran almost 100% counter to the conventional wisdom that says, keep your head down. Right? I told people what I was doing, and they were like, you're, you're crazy. Why would you do that? No one is going to listen to that, and you're going to get canceled or doxxed. What are you thinking? What did I do? Well, I began by considering what the frontline issues were in the culture today. This was about a year ago. And then I decided that I would speak as boldly and authoritatively about these issues from Scripture as I possibly could. In a world that trains us to flee from the fiercest part of the battle, I decided to aim my efforts precisely and directly there. Hence, a podcast about biblical masculinity in a feminized world. Well, what are the results? I think it's been highly effective. I have a tribe of loyal supporters, and I have a horde of green-haired, man-hating, lesbian, Lutheran pastors who absolutely hate my guts. Most importantly, though, many people's lives are being transformed. Polarity creates passion. Passion drives action, and it's been effective, especially if you can live with the fact that it creates discord in some of your relationships, but that's fine. Third, recognize and master the interplay between polarizing speech and relational care. After Jesus had dropped a somewhat confusing or troublesome truth bomb, he would enter homes, he would listen, he would heal, he would walk alongside his disciples, he would answer questions for them, he would provide clarification on the sort of, you know, obscure-seeming things that he had said previously. 
and he would tend to men and women's souls. He wasn't some overly offensive religious version of Howard Stern. He wasn't a shock jock. He chose to be polarizing in order to get people to see truth from a different angle or to examine themselves more realistically. He ate with them, he befriended them, and he cried with them. What's my point? Well, polarity, rightly used, is a tool we use and employ to drive people deeper into a relationship with Christ and a life of continual repentance. It's a merciful thing to confront someone's indifference, but it also has to be paired with relational care. So many people don't realize this about me. They think, oh, you must just say shocking things all the time, probably more than the normal person, I will admit. That's probably true. But I also spend a lot of time just hanging out with people, listening to them. When I was pastoring, you know, you say something shocking from the pulpit, and then you sit with people and you love on them and you pray with them. And so it's kind of this, this balance in your life. It's not just always polarizing messaging all the time. Call people, talk to them, listen to their troubles, get to know them. And this often helps them work through the issue of polarizing speech. One of the things you're trying to do with polarizing speech is have those meaningful conversations. And this is what I found that oftentimes people who are just callous to the truth of Christianity, because I've said something polarizing, they, they want to ask about it and they want to hear what I have to say. And again, a one-on-one or a small group setting is a good place to develop a relationship and explain some of those issues. Fourth, polarization rightly used should lead to action. As mentioned above, the outrage pimps use polarization to drive ratings. But Jesus, on the other hand, used it to drive people to repentance. And there's a vast difference here. A simple litmus test is whether you're using polarization to drive followers or drive stats on your, your podcast, your blog, whatever. You're just trying to get more followers on Twitter or Facebook. Or is it to drive people to repentance? And does that repentance resemble biblical obedience? So what is the purpose and intent of you using some kind of polarizing language? The other thing that you want to ask is, is this polarizing language true? Is it consistent with scripture? Am I being a shock jock just for the sake of it? Or is it actually in line with what the scripture teaches? Most of what passes for polarization in America today is never meant to lead to action, which is how you know it's a counterfeit. Just be outraged about the Democrats. But what you notice is people start getting really squirrely, even conservatives, when you name action steps like getting your kids out of public school or getting out of a wage slave existence in corporate America. This is where people get uneasy. The right kind of polarization and messaging will always lead to obedience, and that obedience will always be defined by Scripture. Now, number three, I want to talk about, and finally, why this matters for the church today. Well, the majority of Christians within the church today take their cues from the Atlantic rather than the Holy Bible. And this is never more clear than when we're talking about polarizing messaging. What I mean is, people in the church today are terrified to speak about the most important issues of the day because they're afraid they might ruffle someone's feathers. God forbid, beyond that, they might get labeled judgmental or divisive. It seems the church refuses to talk about politics or religion, unless, of course, it's talking about it from a perspective on the left, right? CRT, critical race theory, intersectionality, social justice, that's fine. But the conservatives do not want to get into this conversation. So what do we do? Instead, we keep the conversation light and therapeutic. It's all about you and your relationship with Jesus, 
not objective moral standards taught in Scripture. Church leaders refuse to address or take a stand on taboo issues like sexuality or education. They neuter gendered piety into an oblivion of nothingness. They refuse to address the fact that Christians are handing covenant children over to status schools where they're being indoctrinated and thus the church is being ravaged. We're losing our kids to the state and to paganism. These topics, sexuality and education, well, they're off limits. They're too divisive, and so seldom a pastor will actually deal with them from the pulpit. They take scripturally clear issues, on the other hand, and they stir the mud in the bottom of the river until everything looks murky and confusing. Instead of making these matters more clear, they actually make them more murky. They do this because they're cowards. They refuse to answer simple questions with biblical authority and abundant clarity. They do it because they love the crowd that gathers at their mega conference to buy their book. And to borrow from the political arena, many Christians have adopted what I'll call a strategy for aiming at the middle, which if you followed politics for the last few decades, it's a great strategy if you like losing presidential elections. To avoid the title of extremism, evangelical leaders have strategically and consistently taken the place of sophists, punching hard right to distance themselves from conservatives, all the while blowing kisses to progressive elites who hold the reins of cultural production. They take stands only when it's socially acceptable to do so, and it won't cost them anything. These are the kind of leaders in the church that avoid polarizing language at all costs. They stick to the issues that aren't controversial. They go with the current and the winds of culture today. Ironically, this is exactly what's robbed current leaders of any real authority in their churches or in the culture. It's this refusal to speak authoritatively from Scripture on keystone issues. That's what makes these leaders nothing more than empty talking heads that nobody, including the people on the left, actually take that seriously. What I want to do in closing is a sort of boots-on-the-ground approach. What are the key takeaways for churches and Christians engaging in the culture wars today? And how should this affect your day-to-day tactics and your overall strategy? Again, whether it's communication, whether it's your social media, whether it's a church you're planning, how should polarization and these principles that we talked about, how should it impact your life? Well, first, I would encourage you to consider embracing a polarizing message. If you want to establish a community, whether that's online or local, start by taking clear, authoritative, and open stands on the most important issues of the day. Often, this will mean the most controversial. This kind of truth-speaking courage is a huge reason why many people, including Doug Wilson in Christchurch, have been growing over the last few years. It's one of the huge reasons that churches were exploding in growth who refused to close in 2020 and refused the mask orders, right? Those are the churches that are growing. So polarization can be a really good thing. It becomes very clear who is and who is not part of, say, Doug Wilson's tribe. Doug's magnetism attracts some while it drives others away. But this also acts as an effective and necessary filter for the church. A majority of the people who stay are highly invested disciples, not passive consumers. And that's the entire point of a tribe, of discipleship, and of the Christian church. We do not want people 
to hang around the church who all they want to do is passively consume. If they're there for that reason, we want to call them to a life of discipleship and following Jesus, which is costly. And so a polarizing message can help you do this. It's the same reason that churches that grew, as I said, in 2020 the most, well, they were the ones that pushed back hardest against mask mandates and government tyranny. They were the ones that were not afraid to be courageous in their polarizing message. This made them attractive to the right kind of person, and it filtered out the chaff. So again, polarizing messages are a sort of unmasking. Second, I'll say this, don't be afraid to confront the taboo. As George Grant has pointed out, every culture has blasphemy laws. All you have to do is find out what you're not allowed to say, and that's going to tell you what is being falsely worshipped. As Christians, we should be eager to address those very issues. Remember, cultural heat and friction means meaningful conversation and powerful opportunities for change. For example, James Coates, the pastor in Canada, refused to stop preaching. He goes to jail, and because of this, he got millions of us, many in the mainline church, millions of people talking about why we need to resist tyrants. It got us thinking about Matt Truhella's book, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. So the net result of one man's polarizing action was that many mainliners got off the fence and started to take action in their own counties, churches, and communities. So again, in this sense, polarity is a really good thing. Likewise, thought leaders in the intellectual dark web, guys like Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson, the reason they've been so successful is because they're willing to address these quote-unquote untouchable issues, the taboo, right? It was Jordan Peterson who was willing to openly critique Justin Trudeau's leftist political appointments in his cabinet and talk about identity politics. And Joe Rogan, who's talked about Alex Jones and Pizzagate and gay frogs and lots of other things, right? He's willing to have those difficult conversations, have people on his show and ask them really difficult questions. So the lesson you can learn is this. Don't be afraid to address those taboo issues and to do so from an authoritative biblical perspective. This might be the very thing that gives you a voice and a tribe. After all, we should be like Gideon, right? We should be taking these idols into the public square and burning them, not hiding the idols protected by pagan blasphemy laws. This means that we need to be having conversations about difficult issues like human sexuality. Think about for a minute, those of you who know the show, Michael Foster and Non-Tenant, right? They have It's Good to Be a Man. Why are they so effective? Well, they're so effective because they're willing to deal with issues that the majority of the church will not touch with a 10-foot pole, right? Michael and Non, they're willing to talk about difficult issues like pornography, how you can be free from it, etc. They're willing to talk about effeminacy, homosexuality, the tyranny of feminism, androgyny, singleness is not a gift, right? All of these issues, they're willing to tackle them when so many others aren't, and this gives them a tribe. This is what gives them sort of an authority to speak that message. Third, use a polarizing message to drive people to action. People need simple, concrete, relatable, and polarizing communication with clear action items, right? This is, as I said, the beauty of how Michael Foster communicates in many of his messages. This is also the beauty of John the Baptist teaching in the Gospel of Luke. What does he do? He says, well, if you're a tax man and you've been stealing and extorting money from people, don't do that anymore. 
right? You see how clear and straightforward that is? That's the kind of manly, direct application that we need in the church today. Too often, pastors use Christianese language that gets turned into oft-repeated platitudes that nobody actually understands. Right? We say things like, surrender your life to Christ, or man up. But what do those things actually mean? It's like a tired Nike slogan. Just do it. But those phrases don't actually tell us how to do anything. They're pretty vague and, as a result, not actually that helpful. On the other hand, are you addicted to porn? Well, here are the three steps that you can follow to get free. Is your home life falling apart? Here's a battle plan for how to build a durable household. Do you have marital strife? Here's how to talk to your wife. Right? We need to provide people with practical action steps for change. Fourth, polarization helps you know who your enemies are. What would Christ in the Gospels be without the Pharisees, or Paul in the Epistles without the Judaizers? What would David be without his uncircumcised Philistines? The truth is, whether we're talking football or religion, we are hardwired as humans to love a good rivalry. Right? We love Clemson versus Alabama, Red Sox versus Yankees, LSU versus Alabama. Everybody needs a team to root against just as much as they need a team to root for. Polarizing speech draws that line in the sand and makes your enemies come out of the woodwork, especially the dumpy man-haters with shaved heads and baggy clothes, and yes, all the lesbeterians. This is actually, believe it or not, this is a really good thing. In the same way, 2020 was such a gift because it made people pick sides. It made people put their cards on the table. It was an unmasking, an unveiling. When people had to pick sides, you now know clearly where they stood. Many of the big Eva elites, for example, the leaders of evangelicalism, they put their progressive leftist cards on the table for all to see. Those men were probably like that in the closet before, but now it's out in the open, and now we can make reasonable decisions based on what we know and see. On the other hand, good men stood up. People that we weren't sure where they stood, well, they were courageous and bold. Right? We think of John MacArthur. For a long time, early on, he didn't say much. And then he became a lightning rod, polarizing with his message that, no, we're not going to bow to Gavin Newsom in the state of California. Right? So many people came out of the woodwork for the good and for courage and truth and righteousness. All of this is crucial information, and we should be taking notes as we enter the next phase in the campaign of the culture war. Effective communicators and strategists understand the rhetoric of enemies. For example, if you're going to do a blog on masculinity, it would be very helpful to say something, and quite often, I might add, about feminists. If you're talking about the intersection of politics and religion, well, you should probably say something about the Bolsheviks, critical race theory, and Russell Moore's ERLC. You should build your tribe by being clear about who the us and the them are. And you should get into all the messy details. Now, fifth, and maybe most importantly, polarization helps you know who your tribe is. Nothing gets worse press than tribalism. But it's actually an essential dynamic of life in community. It's how we build, shape, and protect culture. Polarizing messages help put clear borders around our tribe so that we know just exactly who the us and who the them really are. 
For example, who are the 150 or so people who really get you, who share your fundamental vision, who resonate with your message and your energy? Who's helping you to protect the perimeter? Who are you fighting alongside in the trenches? Well, polarity helps crystallize who's in and who's out. And in that sense, it's a very effective tool for tribal pursuits. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hardman Podcast. A special shout out and thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Really could not do this without you. One of the things that your support has really helped me to do is revamp my website. You can check that out at ericcon.com. You can now sign up for membership tiers there as well as Patreon, whichever is easier for you. And there's more content behind a paywall for those who are members. So giving you more bang for your buck if you are indeed a supporter. If you're not yet a supporter, I would encourage you to support the work even for as little as $5 a month. That goes a long way to supporting the work of building and producing Christian culture, including the content that is developed through this podcast. As always, I appreciate the reviews that you leave on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Music, etc., Spotify, wherever you listen to the podcast. Leave a positive review, five stars. That's really helpful. Helps get the word out about this podcast. And until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, and act like men.